The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. What is the purpose of your visit to the United Kingdom? I beg your pardon? I'm still deaf from the flying. We are having to be very careful who we are letting into this country, you know. How did you get in? Oh, blimey. I'm totally British. May I ask the question again, please? What is the purpose of your visit to the United Kingdom? To make the friends with the British. Is the purpose of your visit business of pleasure? Pleasure, definitely. Ah, then you are here as a tourist. I'm being reunited with my husband after a long separation. <clears throat> uh, what is your husband now? He's probably in the bath. No, no, I mean, is he already in the United Kingdom? Oh, yes, for a long time. And how long you intend to stay? With my husband? No, in our United Kingdom. Does it matter? I am an EEC citizen. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 4th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be we're joined by Dr. Salim Mansour, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Western University, whose one word today is assimilate, because that's his cure for a lot of society's ills. Would I be correct, Salim, in suggesting that? Yes. Well, we'll be getting underway with our discussion as soon as we remind our listeners that they can and should write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. And Salim... Given that we all live in Canada here, it's amazing what our Prime Minister is doing that I would say is not in the national interest, not in the interests of this country. This all has to do with culture, with language, with immigration laws. And I was just surprised that this article from way back in May, liberals plan to update oath and they want new citizens coming to this country to honor indigenous rights. And they're even talking about introducing more official languages that will honor some of the original native groups of the country. The proposed change, it's going to say this, I swear or affirm that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, and that I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada, including the Constitution, which recognizes and affirms the Aboriginal and treaty rights of First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples, and fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen, end quote. What do you think of that? Isn't that a little bit out there? Divisive, if you ask me. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it is further and further fragmentation of the idea of who is a Canadian. We are not simply a country 
of Canadians, but we are a country of silos of Canadians with different ethnicity, different loyalties, different traditions, different histories. And this fragmentation ultimately then leads to logically to the situation that Canada is no longer a nation state. Canada is an empire run by imperial forces because that's what an empire is. Empire mm-hmm. is not a single Unit. arrangement of a sovereign nation state. It is pulling together and running uh, over a territory that is made up of multiplicity of tribes, multiplicity of groups, and a central elite runs it. The Roman Empire, the British Empire, right. you know. The Soviet Empire, Soviet Union was in effect an empire, and it's one elite that ran it, you know. And so this is the logical unfolding of the direction, it seems to me, where under the Canadian elite, the Laurentian elite, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, this elite is going to perpetually manage the empire by a rule of law that will be dictated by the Laurentian elite. And with that, in effect, is the end of the ideas that brought about the creation of Canada in 1867 by Sir Johnny MacDonald, that this would be a nation-state, a country, a democratic society, uh, peace, order, and good government under the umbrella of God, queen, and country. And so the direction is the epitaph of that Canada on its 150th anniversary. Now, it's interesting because, you know, if if I as a citizen were expected to recognize Aboriginal treaty rights, etc., I wouldn't even know what those were and how they are different from the rights that I as a citizen would have. And so it looks to me as if Trudeau and the Canadian government in particular is using our Aboriginal groups in this country as the lever to get all of their other immigration policies in place. And if I go back a couple of years to 2017, you're talking about assimilation. That very word was considered offensive and racist and because of apparently complaints from the Aboriginal groups. You recall there's a fellow who had a license plate that said assimilate and he wasn't allowed to use it. And for him, it was just taken from the Star Trek series where assimilate was associated with the idea of forcing people into a collective. And while I might share that particular fear, that's not what the word assimilate ever meant to us as immigrants when my family moved to Canada. But this is not the direction this country's headed in. Well, again, logically, uh, what you're spelling out from that uh, reference to the new oath in Canada uh, that includes the oath to respect the rights and duties and obligations of the Aboriginal people, we are not progressing forward. We are going backwards in history because the Aboriginal Treaty, the treaties with the First Nation people, was between the Crown and each of the Aboriginal treaty signatory, the tribe. The crown was before 1867. The crown Mm. ran the country through its representation. The governor general was a direct representative of the crown. And the crown would manage the relationship between the various aboriginal tribes and its obligation to the crown. And then there was the settlement, the upper Canada, lower Canada, the maritime, the settlements of people who had migrated to the British North America under the crown from Europe. 
the 1867 development was that this new state this new country called canada was taking over the responsibility of the crown and then as history unfolds the aboriginal people would be integrated would be hopefully assimilated into becoming canadians their personal history the record of history would all be respected just as the history of the scotch who came to canada are respected this is the history of the irish and the french and the italians and then subsequently in modern time the history of the chinese the indians and so on and so forth they all bring their own history they're respected but you become canadian that you become part of the nation state called canada so it seems to me that instead of progressing towards that direction of being one people bound together by a commonality that is expressed through a democratic institution we are further and further fragmenting our country and we as a people wasn't the fix already in for that just by the nature of the way we set up the aboriginal reserves around the country because that was almost like creating separate jurisdictions within the country and is that not a danger well no this these were all part of history you know and if you ask the historians who have written expressively on this subject they will be able to give you far greater depth and understanding of the situation my understanding is that because of the treaty obligation that the aboriginal tribes uh, had with the crown the post 1867 government as it evolved taking over the responsibility of the crown and being responsible that is the parliament of canada was going to respect those treaties but then also create the situation help the situation whether it was founding of reservation school founding of you know uh, institution within those tribes help them to move forward in the direction of what the rest of canada is as a modern society based upon you know representative government that is a democratic society based on upon representative government that option would be would be open to the indians and they would be persuaded so it is But not any not any, any 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 treaty any relationship is a two way street the fact that we have not encouraged the first nation to become assimilated into canada we then have to ask ourselves why that hasn't happened who is the beneficiary of not allowing or not going forward with what is done with somebody who's arriving from china or india or africa in canada to become a canadian citizen that's an interesting observation because if we failed over the last 150 years to properly integrate or have assimilate into a melting pot of canadian culture the aboriginals that have uh, lived here then how can we expect the same for those who come from far dissimilar countries around the world i think we have to get our act together and understand that people have to assimilate if we are to maintain a nation state with a particular philosophy and culture and we are failing and of course with the liberals in power who are doing their damnedest to destroy any efforts for others to assimilate into a a melting pot of a whole country then we're not going to be able to do it this country cannot stand the way it's going 
Yeah, I mean, take the case, the counterpoint. I mean, we are now talking about Canada, but Canada is a North American country, North American state. What is the counterpoint? The counterpoint is the United States. Both Canada and United States are two countries in the world that is made of immigrants. The, the, the John F. Kennedy wrote the book called The Nation of Immigrants. So immigrants mean people have come from all the various points on our planet looking for better opportunities for themselves and their children and so on and so forth to North America, the new world. And they came and they settled. So what is the experience of the United States in contrast to what we are talking about in Canada? In In the case of the United States is it didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter whether you were brought in as slave or you came in as a free person. In the history of the United States, if you have the problem of Aboriginal in Canada, in the case of the United States, you have the problem of the slaves who were brought to the United States, but we didn't come after their own free volition. So irrespective of how you came, the experience of the United States is, in terms of the timeline of American history, is what was the famous speech that Abraham Lincoln gave at Gettysburg? That, you know, this is the nation that was founded on this concept of democracy and that we are fighting this war so that all men who are created equal will be truly equal. That was the emancipation of the black man who had been brought to America as slave to be an equal American free citizen. So the point is that the American story is a story of integration and assimilation or in the vernacular melting pot. But that was the story of Canada, too, for the first hundred years after 1867. So in our timeline, something changed on the, and after the centenary year in Canada. Now I, can, I can actually bring um, some focus to that. There's a video on Just Right Media's YouTube channel by Dick Field, a person who has recently just, well, passed away just recently, but who we've all met and knew. And he was a World War II veteran, and recently we just remembered the 75th anniversary of exactly, D-Day. Exactly, And he gave a speech, which is on our channel, where he said that, I did not fight for multiculturalism. I did not fight for socialized health care. I did not fight for any of that stuff, which only came after the Second World War. He says the Laurentian elite, and he talks about this, Salim, they said the Laurentian elite crafted our constitution. The Laurentian elite described Canada as a mosaic long after Canada was created, after the Second World War, after the First World War. They changed the nature of this society from one which was one of integration and assimilation into a democratic individualist philosophy to one of a mosaic a fractured mosaic, a mosaic of silos of different ethnicities. And he lamented that till his dying day. Well, I wrote a book on that. If I yes, you now did. That, now that you mentioned Dick Field was a good friend of ours. So the point is that there was an inflection point in the history of Canada. From 1867 to the centenary year, 1967, Canada was advancing in the same you know, rhythm of people assimilating into the Canadian tradition, Canadian value. And what was Canada different than the United States? Because we still remain part of the Commonwealth. We did not become a republic. We are a constitutional democracy, but we are under, as Johnny MacDonald phrased it, God 
queen and country. Interesting. When Johnny MacDonald became the first Prime Minister of Canada, the founding father of Canada, the god queen and country was Queen Victoria. You and I, as we speak together in the month after the 75th anniversary of D-Day, our country is still loyal to the crown, which is Queen Elizabeth II. Right. <laughs> it's a woman. <laughs> Did you hear about that day of infamy that took place in Richmond Hill, Ontario recently? Indeed, this just in, apparently the majority of Richmond Hill City Council is anti-Aboriginal? Huh? Indeed, check out the story in the tragically named local newspaper, the Richmond Hill Liberal. Quote, it was an emotional night for Richmond Hill residents at the council meeting on March 25th. Residents who packed the council chamber gasped and booed as councillors decided not to start council meetings with an Indigenous land acknowledgement, end quote. Now, for those who don't keep up with such fads, Indigenous land acknowledgements are now commonplace at the start of events wherever progressives gather, universities, at protests, and yes, even in government legislatures. They're a way for white virtue signalers to ask forgiveness for daring to set foot on what used to be First Nations territory. This particular acknowledgement, had it been adopted, would have noted that Richmond Hill is situated upon the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe people, whose presence continues to this day. But gracious, who would be so anti-Indian to veto such a statement as that? Well, I reached out to Councillor Carmen Pirelli, who was opposed to opening council meetings with an Indigenous land acknowledgement. I wanted to see if there was more to this story than what the Richmond Hill Liberal was reporting. And shockers, indeed there is. Pirelli notes a few pertinent points. First, in the Federal Truth and Reconciliation Report, there are precisely 94 calls to action, and not a single call to action urges Canadian municipalities to open their meetings with a Native land acknowledgement. Furthermore, Pirelli says he personally reached out to Natives who live in Richmond Hill. Everyone he spoke to said they are not interested in such an acknowledgement. In fact, one Native dismissed this as being an act of patronizing virtue signaling, telling Pirelli that this whole acknowledgement movement is being spearheaded by, quote, white people who want to pat themselves on the back, end quote. So who on council was supporting this agenda? Well, the motion was put forward by David West and seconded by Karen Selovitz. It was also supported by Mayor Dave Barrow. How interesting that these three musketeers were the same ones who defeated a motion put forth by Councillor Greg Barrows three years ago that would have seen Richmond Hill start its council meetings with the playing of O Canada. Incredibly, this was voted down by the likes of Barrow, West, and Selovitz after the town received a legal opinion. Apparently, it's the God word in the anthem that makes O Canada song non grata as it might be offensive to atheists. Regardless, the same councillors who support an Indigenous land acknowledgement find O Canada to be offensive? Oh, that's offensive. 
Salim, I'm almost of the opinion in comparing Canada and the United States and each country's immigrants that the immigrants still had it a lot better than the natives who were in the country to begin with, the aboriginals, because I would put it to you that in America, the problem with the aboriginals there living still on reservations is very similar to that in Canada. And Anyone who visits these places will tell you that the poverty rates are great. I mean, here in Canada, they're talking about the people who live on the reservations are are facing genocide. And I've heard people who live on there use that word as well. Um, they're not doing their cause any favors by suggesting that it's a genocide. I can tell I you understand, that. but that's not my point. My point is that's how divisive this issue is. And I find that part of the problem that makes them a little different from most immigrants is the fact that at least immigrants, when they are in the jurisdiction of the country, are living under the same set of rules and laws and understandings, whereas it's a little different when you're talking about any sort of a reservation where a tribe is controlling ownership. I mean, one time I suggested that Aboriginal reservations should be privatized in the sense of leaving them in the hands of Aboriginals, but so they can do with their property, what the rest of us can do with ours. You like know a gated I mean? community of condominiums. Well, <laughs> it, 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 it's almost like that, but at least they could they could then act, you yes. know what I mean? And they would have the same powers as everyone else. But as, as it is, they've placed themselves in a situation of eternal dependence. And, and the dependence now is on a culture outside of their own. That's naturally going to create, I would think, divisions that you can't overcome that easily. Well, these are very large topics, and I would offer you the following thought Mm. on this matter, that this is not simply a Canadian problem or American problem. This is a problem which is global, irrespective of which country you point out to in that global sense. I mean, this is a problem in Australia. This is a problem in India. There are tribal tribal societies in India. You go to Africa, you know. So what is the problem in the largest sense, I would say, is the problem of the unfolding of the modernity process, the modernization, and those people who, by choice or by circumstances, exclude themselves from the process of modernization. So here, take the case of the United States that you're talking about. There is no deliberate policy in the U.S. Constitution and therefore in the acts, the statutes, that you're going to exclude the Aboriginal people, the native Indians in America that they call, from the process of the industrialization, the modernization, the development of America that has been the most fascinating development in all of history. From the Stone Age of the native Indians who never invented a wheel to an American landing on the moon. That's the span of the history. So if there are pockets of communities in Arizona or in Nebraska or where have you, with 1,000% or less of Indian in Senator Elizabeth Warren, (laughs) then it is their choice. There was no way to exclude them. In fact, the reservation school in Canada was to bring the education to the children of native Indian population, right? So... There is that element of bringing them into the modern world, but then you step back, not in the case of the United States, but in the case of of Canada, you step back that the treaty obligation was with the crown. The crown is paternalistic. The crown is not 
a democratic institution. The crown had to be fought to become democracy, starting with Magna Carta, right? And the stages of the process in which the crown turned from being a paternalistic institution to becoming the symbolic representation of a people in the case of, of Great Britain. And in the case of America, the crown was defeated. That was the revolution, and America became a republic. In the case of Canada, we became a country, but we maintained the symbolic representation of the crown. We are a democratic society with a democratic constitution. Both the BNA Act and the subsequent Charter of Rights that Pierre Trudeau brought in in 1982. So the question is what you, we are struggling with or what people are struggling at, why is it the, uh, the native in Indian population are in that situation? Now, can I turn it around and say that the elite among the native Indian population has an advantage to maintain that position and deprive their own population of the advantages of becoming a modern society? There's a lot of, there's a lot of corruption going on in many of the We've reserves. We've made that case ourselves yeah, in the so, past. So, okay, it's but, a case, it's the facts on the table. Right. There's, there's something interesting about this native or aboriginal situation versus, say, an immigration situation. And I wanted to pick up on the point you're bringing up Salim, and that is, I know a lot of uh, Aboriginals, right, natives, and to, the ones that I know have integrated fully into Canadian society. It is those in the pockets of the reserves in the very remote areas of the country that still maintain their tribalistic attitudes and their collective attitudes where you can go from a your house into somebody else's house and take their stuff because, well, there's no such thing as a property right on many of these reserves. But that, as you say, is their choice. They're still Canadian citizens. There's nothing stopping them from going from Cheshire Labrador to uh, move into Lab City or move, move into Churchill Falls or move to Toronto. There's nothing stopping them from integrating if they wish to. However, let's take the argument to where I think this should go, if I may, and that is where we now have virtually open borders in this country to uh, societies, and this is another area we can go to, which are less evolved, for use of a better word, or less civilized than the Canadian culture, because I think that when you're talking about assimilating, you have to talk about relativism, assimilating from something to something, from something that is not as good to something that is better. And I think that our society is better based on the criteria of individual rights and freedoms. You can talk about the society of Pakistan, you can talk about the society of um, a lot of African countries, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, for example, in the Middle East, and, you, and, and there is a definite hierarchy of what is good versus what is bad. And our society is good in the sense that it protects the individual. Those societies do not. And that is why we see a lot of people coming here. And yet we have, with these open border policies, these people coming to, say, Vancouver, and you have a Sikh population in Vancouver, which isolate themselves. And it's like you're going over to the Punjab when you, when you visit them, or a Haitian community in Montreal. And it's as if you're going, going down to Haiti when you visit that community, and they maintain their uncivilized, if I may be forgiven for saying that word, for many of these societies. 
and they maintain those ways. They have not assimilated, and our country is to blame for doing that. Our leaders are to blame for maintaining these silos of tribes. Well, look, I mean, the way you have explained it is the problematic, and you will be pounced upon it. You know, the issue is not about less civilized and more civilized. What it is about is moving from pre-modern cultures to modern culture. Well, if you want to call it modern so, versus pre-modern, I will use that word civilized so it's okay. to identify so, the same civil, thing. Civilization is modern civilization, pre-modern civilization. In the other words, people in pre-modern civilization, which is which is contemporaneous, we, by talking about pre-modern civilization doesn't mean that we're going to the 17th century or the 18th century. We're talking about contemporaneous. So, say, Somalia is a pre-modern society. Afghanistan is a pre-modern society in the 21st century. And a people from a pre-modern society in the 21st century that is, they have been assimilated into the culture of pre-modernity. They have their rules. They have their values. And a modern culture cannot operate on a pre-modern culture rules and values. I cannot go from, to England and drive on the same side of the road as I'm driving in Canada. So each society have the rules. It's not. And there's a subjective element, you might say, yes, it is better. I will agree with that, that even an objectively speaking, you might say it is better. But it is a pre-modern culture. And modern people or people of modern civilization are not going, unless they're anthropologists or explorers and adventurers, they're not moving to live in a pre-modern culture. It is the reverse. That's true. People from the pre-modern culture <laughs> are moving to the modern culture, yes. either voluntarily or they're being imported. Because mm -hmm. that's the issue of migration, immigration policy. They're being imported. Mm -hmm. So once the people from pre-modern culture moves into modern culture, the question then emerges is, do we ask the people of pre-modern cultures who are now arrived in Canada do they continue to live with the values of what they have grown up with and what is their values, pre-modern values, in a modern society or they assimilate into modern society, the values, the laws, the principles by which the modern society operates. And the problematic has been that in the period after the centenary of Canada, that is the period we are talking about, 1967 and after, that is the last 50 years, which is the inflection point, the Laurentian elite moved in the direction away from the process of assimilation into the process of creating silos, which is basically what multiculturalism is all about. All cultures are equal, which is an oxymoron because pre-modern culture is not equal to modern culture and modern culture is not equal to pre-modern culture. If, if our listeners want an example of what our nation actually thinks of this cultural relativism, it is when Justin Trudeau refuses to identify people returning from ISIS as... Uh, combatants as the savages that they are, and instead refers to them as foreign travelers, his words, who still have something to offer our society. I, I mean, I, I, I know the example that you're throwing up, but I don't think that is 
necessarily relevant to this discussion. The ISIS phenomena that those people in Canada, whether they belong to pre-modern culture, that is, they are the children of Muslims from the Muslim world, born in Canada, who then go to fight for ISIS, or Canadians by birth and by ethnicity, that is of European descent, converting into the values of ISIS and going and fighting with them, as is John Walker Lind in United States. Why I bring it up, Salim? As, 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 as there are Canadians who have done that. What? But, but the point I'm trying to make is that ISIS is a matter of treason. They went, the people, whoever they are, that they've made war against Canadians. And so they should be held up for treason. Well, I don't bring it up because of that. And, I bring it up because not, Justin Trudeau is failing to pass judgment, yeah, a moral judgment just, on just, society. Justin Trudeau is failing in all sorts of accounts. <laughs> 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 Justin Trudeau is an empty head. Hey, Ben. Uh, my question is, uh, growing up on a Native American reservation in California and being one of the only few conservative Native Americans I've seen on reservations, um, I've seen the complete dependence on government from healthcare to food commodities to the land we live on. Many people on the reservation are completely dependent on the government and it creates a reliance and I see even a division among us. I believe it divides many Native Americans from the rest of the outside world. Also, we fought so hard to be free from government control and now it seems that most Native Americans and a lot of minorities vote so liberally and want the government involved in like every aspect of their lives. So my question is two parts. Number one, should we get rid of the reservation system? And two, how can we return Native Americans and other minorities back to a more conservative slash libertarian mindset? So I'll admit to some ignorance on the, on the workings of the reservation system, just to start. Uh, so what, from what I do know, my feelings on the reservation system are secondary to my feelings that you as an individual should make decisions in your own life about whether you want to live on a reservation or whether you want to move out of a reservation and live in an area that's not so dominated by the federal government. Yeah. So I'm not going to speak to tribal sovereignty because I, I, I think that the original idea of granting tribal sovereignty to tribes that had been displaced was not a bad one. I don't think that that was a necessarily bad idea from the beginning. I do think that the reservations are horribly run by the federal government because the federal government is terrible at everything. Uh, so <laughs> anything that forwards individual self-reliance, in other words, I think is going to be a better solution. And I don't know that that has to do specifically with the idea of, of you know, reservations being outside the purview of state government, or if it has more to do with just a culture that has been created in every area across the United States, reservation, non-reservation, in which people are dependent on government, and once you're dependent on government, you're used to being dependent on government, and that creates a, a sort of enervation of the population that's a problem. says the government is unresponsive. They're all over this alien cover-up. Those men knew who killed Marie and they refused to tell us. Abducted by government agents, huh? Come on. What were you two really doing? They were men in black. Where are you with the vacuum packers? So far, I have found over 100 machines in the five boroughs. CSU's checking as fast as they can. And the cigarettes? No DNA match, but they are a Chinese brand, only found in Asia or on the black market in Chinatown. So maybe she was killed by an alien, just... An illegal alien. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Salim, regarding cultural relativism and 
the willingness to actually pass judgment on other cultures for their uncivilized uh, traditions or behaviors or institutions. There's a great quote from uh, John Cleese of uh, Monty Python fame just recently, who said, uh, when he lamented the fact that London, England is no longer English, which is v- uh, very much a, an accurate statement, apparently, from what I, f- I hear, he recently said, uh, doubling down, quote, I prefer cultures that do not tolerate female genital mutilation. And of course, I, I would agree with him. And, and but, but, but it speaks to the point that some cultures, some institutions, some behaviors, some countries, some nation states have practices that for, for the people in this room are abhorrent, should be passed judgment on. And which is why a lot of people come over here. Now, a lot of people come over here and do not assimilate. They bring that abhorrent behavior with them. And I think that you're very familiar with um, one case, uh, Axa Parvez, who was um, murdered by her family uh, for trying to assimilate into a Canadian modern culture. Can you speak a bit about that? Because I know that you spoke at McGill University maybe 10 years ago on that. Well, the example of Aksa Parvez uh, I provided as as an example of what is freedom all about. This, this young girl in Canada, raised in Canada, just wanted to be like a Canadian, any other Canadian girl in terms of the modern culture of Canada. And her father and brother snuffed her life off. And it happened in Canada under the eyes of the Canadian institutions. And nobody stepped in to protect her. And she was not the only case, but she is possibly one of the most tragic cases and has, in my view, should become the emblem of what what happens when people of a pre-modern culture collide with the circumstances and context of a modern culture. Her parents were in a pre-modern culture. Now, if they had been living in Afghanistan, possibly Aksa Parvez would have been alive because she would have been living within the constraints and the rules and the regulations of a modern culture. Look, in my book, I've talked about this. What we are talking about is the Sharia values, the Sharia laws that is practiced as the normative laws of majority Muslim countries are incompatible with the laws of a modern liberal democracy such as ours. And so when we pass a judgment, that you're passing a judgment, that isn't by saying they're they're incompatible, that's a judgment. They're incompatible. So we have to decide whether we will allow or should allow a Sharia culture be practiced and observed in Canada. Now, under multiculturalism, the logic of multiculturalism, yes, because multiculturalism says all cultures are equal, and it will not pass a judgment on the incompatibility of a Sharia culture with a modern liberal democracy. So whether you're quoting John Cleese or you're quoting me, the point we're making is the same point, that there is pre-modern culture which could be very logical within the context of that society. But when you import a pre-modern culture or the people of pre-modern culture into a modern society, then you're going to have a problem. There's going to be a collision. I have tried to explain this situation right in the House of Commons in my expert witness testimonial to the committee uh, of citizenship and immigration. And one of the points I've tried to make is that a liberal culture 
importing an illiberal culture over time will lose its liberal values. I'll just remind our listeners that the book you're talking about it was delectable a delectable lie, lie a, a liberal repudiation of multiculturalism, yes, and right. um, that is still available. Yes, it is still available, Amazon.com, Amazon.ca. We actually reviewed your book when it first came out, if people want to search for that on our website. I just wanted to add, too, that I think there's a point of view that kind of reconciles what both of you are saying, and I have to refer to author Isabel Patterson from her book, God of the Machine, which was written almost a century ago now. And she always spoke in terms of energy, that as a culture became more modern and more advanced, it was able to release more of the people's energy. And she always said that a higher energy society cannot coexist beside a low energy society or vice versa because they're, they're incompatible. And she, she said part of the explosion that happened in Europe during World War One and Two was that Europe was still structured on all these old relationships that we've discussed on the show before, Salim, while the rest of the world was going past them, just in terms of industrialization and being able to handle that increased, quote-unquote, energy. And she meant it both literally and figuratively. What what I should draw your attention Mm -hmm. to, you haven't thought about it, energy is freedom. A society that that allows for greater and greater exercise of freedom based on individual right is of a higher culture than a society that constrains, abridges, and closes off freedom of the exactly. based on individual rights. That's what you almost said it in the same terms that she did just okay. now. So that's that's what it is. Right. And look at it. I mean where you began from about, you know, uh, in your opening remarks where we have arrived at, what is happening as I pointed out, we are moving backwards instead of moving forward. We are creating silos and we're becoming an empire and in other words, we are now trying to abridge freedom and freedom energy. in the sense of individual rights. We're trying to impose censorship, censorship in our writing, censorship in our speaking. That is the political correctness code. And who's going to police that political correctness code? Back to the Laurentian elite. So we are living in the 21st century in what George Orwell imagined, the world of 1984. There's a, an element into this discussion that you would not have been able to talk about 20 years ago, and that is social media. Now, on social media, I have friends who are in Saudi Arabia, Turkey, United States, all over the world. doesn't matter where, they're in Japan. And there's a, a new common culture apparently spreading throughout the entire world because we are now all connected. At a moment's notice, you know whatever is going on in the entire planet. And ideas like liberal ideas, progressive ideas, if you will, uh, and even conservative ideas and ideas about uh, the values of institutions and democracy and individual freedom and the monarchy. These are all being circulated at lightning speed now throughout all cultures. And we see people like the young lady who just escaped from Saudi Arabia and came to Canada and was welcomed here. And she got onto Twitter. She locked herself into an airport hotel room and pleaded for people to, you know, to advocate for her, to let her into this country. Social media is probably changing the entire dynamic of what we're talking about. The assimilation seems to be going on without actually leaving home or your own country. 
Yes, in, in, in the sense that once a technology is invented and is available, it cannot be, the effects of that technology cannot be put back into the bottle. The genie is out. So in the age of global communication and iPhone that we are living in, the digital world, that technology has liberated us as individuals in a manner that our ancestors could never have imagined. However, we come back to the world of politics. And politics is about how do you control people. So while technology has made individual freedom far more potential potential and potent political system either will be one that will allow and help individuals realize that potentiality or will seek to curb it, control it, and prevent individuals from upturning the political cart that is authoritarian. As you're fond of saying, politics is always downstream from culture, but culture seems to be changing so rapidly Politics seems to be getting in the way. You know, the, the culture is not changed. Culture has to change among people. It's not individual. Liu Xiaobo, who died in communist prison in China recently, was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2010 for peace. Liu Xiaobo talked about, this is how he expressed it, uh, uh, freedom of speech is the mother of all freedom. And look at the irony, he was imprisoned when communist China. Communist China today is the world's second largest economy and rapidly might even exceed American economy given the population and, 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 and the energy by which it is moving forward. But it is a controlled society. And an exemplar for Justin Trudeau, who loves that society. Right, but the point <laughs> is, uh, Liu Xiaobo cannot, in the 21st century, he could not be a free man. You know, even though he understood what freedom meant and he wanted freedom, he was imprisoned and he died. In, in. So freedom can exist. I mean, you can be in a cage and you can be free. People like Solzhenitsyn have written that he knew freedom far more when he was in the gulag than when he came back into the society. And that's what was his, his warning when he gave the famous Harvard speech in 1975, that, you know, you people living in freedom don't know the meaning of freedom anymore. Mm -hmm. You see, that's the conundrum, that's the paradox that we have to deal with. I talk about politics, I really shouldn't, because I live in California and somehow Arnold Schwarzenegger became our governor. Uh, yeah, that's funny from where you're sitting. It's embarrassing, man, but I'll tell you the funniest thing about Arnold, Arnold speaks out against immigration. <laughs> yeah, I know, that always takes a minute, doesn't it? And whenever he does it, I'm looking at him like, yo, Arnie, you ain't exactly from around here. I don't know if you watch those movies, but you talk a little funny yourself. I know, because everyone's mad at the illegal aliens, you know, and we know what they mean. They don't mean illegal Canadians, they're mad at the Mexicans. Why? What's their big crime? You know what they do? They pick fruits and vegetables. Well, who else is gonna do it? Huh, because I'm gonna tell you right now, black people, we ain't picking nothing, man. <laughs> All right, I believe we have served our picking time.
asking only that you give us your word and your chains will be removed. You don't seem to understand. Gaius Metellus Livius wishes to remove your chains. He wishes to make free men, free women of you. He wishes to make you Romans. There's no reason to change your ways. Don't you want us, Roman? You miserable, uneducated half-men. You're not at all what we fought for. And yet, yes, we want you. In this conversation of assimilation and immigration and culture, I think it's important to understand the root cause or the, of this argument, this discussion, and that is a, a relativism, an understanding that some things are better than others. And what we've more or less discussed here is what we've discussed in almost all of our shows, and that is that freedom is better than tyranny. Freedom is better than uh, communism. Individualism is better than collectivism. And when we talk about assimilation, we're not trying to force anybody to do anything that is not against um, freedom, right? Against their own best interest, against our own self-interest as a nation and as individuals within this nation. So if somebody wants to come over here from Afghanistan and murder their daughter, Aksapavar as an example, because she doesn't want to conform, she wants to express her freedom, that has to be stopped. Some things are good, some things are bad. The, 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 the litmus test is the individual and individual freedom. What do you think yeah, of that, Sylvia? We're, we're in agreement yeah, there, aren't we? We, we? we agree on it. I mean, take the, take the opposite case, you know. Uh, people who may move into Japan, if Japan allows that sort of movement as is happening in Canada and the United States, people who move into Japan would then have to abide by Japanese culture whether you want to define it as free culture or emperor culture or samurai culture, is immaterial. That's a qualification. But whatever is Japanese culture, they would have to abide by that Japanese culture. They would have to become, in a sense, Japanese. Coming into Canada, where we are, we are struggling with this problem of silos, multiculturalism, and assimilation, what it seems to be evident is that the culture that built Canada from the period of the first arrival of the Europeans on the North American continent. Quebec City celebrated the 400th centenary a few years ago. So the people who moved from Europe to the New World and created what is your and my inheritance as Canadian that we are living in, they brought in a culture that evolved into a free culture. That is a modern culture. Anybody else coming into this society from pre-modern culture then has a choice whether they will continue to live in their pre-modern values or they will assimilate into modern culture. Now, before the centenary year, in Canadian modern history, it was expected that if you were Italian or Basque or Scotch or whatever you were, Japanese or Korean, you came to Canada and you became a Canadian. 
You either learned English or you learned French, but you became a Canadian. Something happened after 1967 where multiculturalism became the official policy. Now, 50 years later, we are examining this. But the point that I find most interesting is that what happened was that the peoples who built this modern Canada, their children lost faith in that modern Canada. And the question is why? Why did they develop this angst that it is left to me? I am somebody who came to Canada from a pre-modern culture, that is India. And I am defending modern culture. I want everybody to be a Canadian in the sense, not a hyphenated Canadian, but a Canadian fully given to defending the culture of freedom, that I basically flourished in this country, which I would not have if I was in India. When you say modern, um, I'd like you to expand on that a little bit, because if you look at, for example, pictures of Dubai, which I consider to be uh, have elements of uncivilization about it, but is very modern, in its architecture, in its technology, and in a lot, a lot of a lot of respects, in its innovation, and and even um, cities in what are would be described as uncivilized countries, they look modern. There's this cargo cult appearance to them, a civility, if you will, that they are modern. But underneath that modernity, are laws and practices and cultural norms which you and I would still find. Abhorrent. But this is what I'm trying to get across to you, Robert, and I think we are stuck with you coming back to it. You are looking at modernity in terms of high-rise building, flyover roads, uh, iPhone with a guy sitting on a camel. No, China is very modern, if you use those terminology. I mean, if Shanghai That's and Beijing, I... just a moment, Shanghai and Beijing and others are... I was in Hong Kong a few years ago, and what stunned me was Hong Kong was, in, in all its physical appearance, was a city much better organized than Paris or London. But the point about what I have been stressing is modernity is not simply the building. The culture of modernity is freedom and then what free people do. Okay, that's why I wanted, and, to, and, I wanted and to... And when we talk about modernity as freedom and free culture, we're talking about a modern civilization, not pre-modern, not uncivilized. The Chinese Communist Party's culture ironically, is the same culture as the emperors of China with a 5,000-year history. I wanted to make that distinction. And it is a 5,000-year civilization. I wanted, to, I wanted you to make the distinction that when you're talking modernity, you're not talking about spaceships and automobiles and cell phones. You're talking about philosophy and ideology. An ideology, a modern ideology, is one of individualism. A pre-modern ideology is an uncivilized collectivist. And, and if, if there is a difference in... Uh, I mean, now we are becoming argumentative, but let's argue it out. I'm no. simply trying to understand what you mean by modern, because that word has been used, and I thought perhaps you were soft-pedaling the judgment that we have to make on uncivilized nations. No, no, no. The word uncivilized is why I am reluctant to uh, talk see, about it. I thought so. And, 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 well, let me give you an example. The Roman Empire had a numeral system. We call it Roman numerals. And they could only go so far with the Roman numeral system, right? Until the zero was imported 
into the Roman Empire or what remained of the Roman Empire from the Arabs who brought it from India. And so that is now today called the Arabic numeral, but it, came, it was invented in India. That is, the critical distinction was zero. And the whole world of mathematics and science changed. What you could do in terms of quadratic algebra and geometry and calculus, you couldn't do with Roman numerals, right? Rome was a very civilized part of the world. It was the greatest civilization. So what I'm trying to say, Dubai, as you told an example, is civilized within the context of Dubai's culture, and it is not a free culture. So in my estimation, it is uncivilized. It's civilized yeah, so. with, with different aspects, right? But it's uncivilized from my um, metric, my point of view. Uh, you, you, you insist on that subjectivity, and I would say, fine, I'm trying to do it in an objective sense. Objective sense, that is, you know, world is made up of many different civilizations with many different attributes, and the uniqueness of the West is based upon what had been lost by the Greeks, who were the first people who, who spoke about freedom. And then for a thousand years it was lost, till it was resurrected again in the little triangular space, which is now Western Europe. And there it erupted. But civilization had existed before this eruption took place. I, th I think what's central to this is our mutual concern about the potential of our loss of freedom that has been you know, earned on, with such great difficulty and sacrifice over the years. And I thought just in our closing moments or two, I might cite the late George Jonas, who in an article that he wrote before he passed away that was called Our One Night Stand with Freedom. And he observed, I just noticed this now, he said, we went from a pre-democracy directly into a post-democracy. He said, that's when the state turned into a secular theocracy. Would you agree with that? Yes. Isn't that beautiful? That's exactly what has happened. The modern culture is a freedom culture. And postmodern, which is what our friend Justin Trudeau called Canada, the postmodern state, is, in contemporary term, a culture of globalism, where we abandon our nation state based upon individual rights and freedom, to embrace and open ourselves up to the rule by some remote central power, in this case, people sitting in the United Nations and directing the affairs of Canada. Where do you think we're going to go from here, Salim, as a culture? If we lose our free culture, we will become increasingly uh, simply a society of robots that will be manipulated by an elite technocrats. You mean like the Borg? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us again, Salim, and let's hope that uh, the world's one night stand with freedom, as George Jonas said. Let's hope the 21st century is a recovery of that freedom, that that's the way we'll be heading in the future. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So, Montreal! I've been, I've been walking around your city today, and you know what fascinates me the most? You've got bilingual beggars. <laughs> Where I'm from, if you can speak two languages, you're at least guaranteed a job at the embassy.
this afternoon, I bought a French-English phrase book so I could blend in. <laughs> and I was walking down Saint-Denis and I heard, Psst, à tout de change. À tout de change. Je ne vous comprends pas, je suis anglais. Parlez-vous anglais? Yeah. You spare some change, buddy? Non. 